Welcome to another episode of Logistics with Purpose. I'm your host, Enrique Alvarez, and today we have an amazing guest. Uh, it's going to be one of those conversations that I'll basically just shut up and let my guests talk. And this person not only has an incredible trajectory when it comes to logistics, he's an expert in logistics, but he also has purpose as his one of his core values and probably the the main driving force behind everything that he's been doing. And so for me, it's going to be a very exciting, very interesting conversation. And before I just introduce you to our guest today, just wanted to remind you that if you enjoy conversations like this one and the ones that we've had in the past, don't forget to sign up. Uh, we're part of Supply Chain Now. This is another episode of Logistics with Purpose. And you can Listen to our episodes in any uh, any place that you get your podcast from. We also have a YouTube channel, LinkedIn website, uh, and everything else. So once again, welcome to Logistics with Purpose. And without further ado, let me introduce you to someone that not only is industrial engineer from Mexico, he studied a master's in Barcelona, logistics master's in Barcelona. And then he also went to... Uh, Geneva to the Center of Humanitarian Studies. He has uh, certain uh, certifications as well from Georgia Tech, and he's a member of the Special Coffee Association. And he is currently now the country director and general manager for Doctors Without Borders, or Médecins Sans Frontières, and I'll probably butchered my French there, in Kampala, Uganda. With us today, Diego Flores. And with us today, Again, super excited and happy to introduce you to Diego Flores. Diego, how are you doing today? Good, uh, good uh, afternoon here in Atlanta. What uh, what's the time in Kampala today, right now? Hi, Enrique. Uh, it's 7 p.m. here. It's almost 7 p.m. Well, good afternoon to you. Good evening to you. And again, thank you so much for being here with us today. I uh, it's just going to be a very exciting episode, I'm sure. And, and thank you before we kind of deep dive into your professional career and trajectory and what the uh, organization, your organization is doing and how much it's helping others. I just want to say thank you on behalf of myself, the team at Vector, everyone that actually listens to Supply Chain now. I mean, it's just incredible to have people like yourself caring and being very selfless about helping others and really committing your life to, to really changing or improving other people's lives. So thank you very much and welcome. Thank you, Enrique. It's really nice. Uh, uh, it's in fact, it's my first ever podcast. So I'm quite excited to be here to, to, to share with all of you about MSF and what we are doing around the world, not only with COVID, but also some, a lot of other things, yeah. I kind of tried to introduce the organization's name in French by myself, and I'm pretty sure that I did a terrible <laughs> job. So before I start asking you about you and, how do you pronounce it? I said Medicine Sans Frontier. Well, um, 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 my French is not, it's not, it's also not the best, but uh, it's Medicine Sans Frontier. <laughs> so kind of, but if we sounds have, so much better, if, if we have a francophone listening, I'm sure he will make sure, sure he will make fun of my, my accents as well and <laughs> my pronunciation, but kind of. They'll have all your contact information uh, so they can reach to you afterwards and kind of com comment on your French too. But no, it's, before it's, I just want to say it's MSF, but it's also well known in in America and then in North America, Canada. It's Doctors Without Borders. It's also another name that we go for. So yeah, Medicos Sin Fronteras in Español. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but before we even go into any of that, because uh, before you even started working with them, um, tell us a little bit more about you. Tell us a little bit about your upbringing. You're originally from Mexico. Tell us a little bit more about you and, and all these different steps that you took that led you to where you are now, which is very exciting. Okay, thanks. Uh, so, well, I'm, I'm originally from the north part of Mexico, from the state which is called Coahuila. And uh, I grew up in a, in a city which is basically, everything is uh, revolving around the, the, the industry of the steel, the steel production. Um, but then uh, when I just uh, finished high school, I moved to the neighbor state, which is uh, Nuevo Leon, uh, like a lot of people in my city uh, did back then and even nowadays. Uh, and uh, well, I studied, uh, I'm an industrial, in industrial engineer. And uh, basically since my internship, internship times, uh, I was kind of already into supply chain, into logistics, into materials uh, handling and all that stuff, you know. Uh, 
So my first ever job uh, uh, while still studying uh, uh, in the university uh, was a planner buyer. So I was in charge of planning, you know, uh, all the orders for the steel uh, coils uh, from different thickness and, uh, you know, and all the characteristics of the steel that you need for the automotive industry. Uh, in the, specifically in this uh, company, uh, still nowadays, uh, well, it's called Metalsa, they, they, they produce mainly uh, automotive uh, frames uh, for uh, the frames for the, back then it was a Ram Charger mainly. Uh, for Chrysler, uh, so we were stamping all the components there, so assembling and all that. But long story short, I was in charge of the planning and buying uh, the, all the steel for, for the stamping area, for the production of the components of those frames. So it was my very first immersion, immersion into EMR materials requirement planning and just-in-time deliveries, uh, stuff like that, you know, more putting on practice uh, what I learned in the university. That so, was uh, you, while you were still studying at, uh, at the university, right? Yeah, then, yeah. So and before, before you jump ahead, because I, I still want to extract a little more of your upbringing and some of the uh, experiences that you had, because it sounds to me just by um, the conversation we had before the show, but then also just by looking into your LinkedIn profile and all that, that you, you've always been very involved in giving back. I mean, for you, it sounds like it has been important for you your entire life. Could you tell us a bit more? I mean, where where do you get this from? Is it your is it your parents? Is it your uh, someone a mentor? Like, wh why do you care about what happens to other people? It's kind of yeah, that's a really good question, honestly. Okay, so I grew up seeing my parents, you know, uh, always being quite heavily involved in, you know, com com community helping and stuff like that. Uh, what we call the, uh, well, the Lions Club, uh, the Club de Leones in Spanish, you know, uh, which is everywhere. I mean, since I have memory until basically I graduated from 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 university, my uh, my mother and father, they were heavily involved in in this uh you know in this uh altruistic activities and as well caritas and stuff like that you know so in some way i was kind of dragged to this because i was helping my parents in, in the activities they right, were organizing right. with the weekends and stuff like this to be honest i never i didn't it was not so obvious. I, I was not really expecting to, to switch my career to become fully for the NGO. But I, since basically early, since I, I have memory, again, uh, I was almost every weekend uh, or quite often, you know, involved in activities like this uh, in my city uh, with my parents, you know. Uh, then do, you remember, do you remember anything that maybe your mom or your father or someone uh, around those times told you that you're like, hey, listen, this is something you always have to do or any kind of... Uh I think, yeah, well, it might be quite cliche uh, because probably all the parents tell this to their children, but it's really <laughs> stay on my on my head, uh, especially my mother. You know, she told me, okay, do, do your best, uh, become a manager, become a CEO, become a director or whatever uh, in the, you know, in an industry, if you want to be an engineer and stuff like that, but keep it's not about the money, my son. It's about the impact of your job, you know, and uh, how it's positively impacting uh, the others around you and even those that you cannot uh, see and you don't meet. So keep on mind whichever decision you take, whichever thing you do, uh, try to think about the impact in others, you know, uh, and, 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 and also do it uh, without not trying to get recognition. Just do it because we need people. We need to be like these uh, human beings, you know. Obviously, all this with the, you know, the Mexican mother, protective mom <laughs> and all that. Uh, I know exactly what you're talking you about. Know, <laughs> and stuff like that. So, yeah. No, and I and I wish more, uh, more, more parents and mothers and fathers and everyone would kind of teach that to their children because I, I mean, you're right. I, and maybe they do. And then at some point, we just kind of grow up and forget about those things. But... But that is really powerful and, and impactful, and and it has been a guiding principle in your life. It sounds like, and it's just 
just kind of quoting your mom. It's not about the money, but the impact of your job. That's, I mean, that's very, that's, that tells a lot about kind of uh, someone. So this is, this is great. And you, you mentioned your brother at some point as well. He was, you have a couple, you have two brothers, right? Yeah. Well, I do have three brothers. Uh, we are uh, out of the four, we are three engineers and the younger one, the youngest one, sorry, uh, it's uh, it's an accountant. So we always make fun of him because of that. <laughs> I respect course. a lot of accountants, by the way. Uh, but uh, <laughs> the, my older brother, the one just next to me, um, uh, he's a mechanical engineer. And then basically also him... Uh, I was following his career, you know, like since he graduated as well, he was into logistics and supply chain. And uh, I was in some way when he started to, to study his master's degree, I was kind of asking him a lot of questions about his thesis. He was doing something related to materials requirement, planning MRP and stuff like that, which back then it was the thing, you know, MRPs, MRPs, right. MRPs and stuff like that. Um, and I kind of even helped him, you know, to to, to, to research some, some materials, uh, to get some materials from the library because back then, yeah, we had internet, but eh, not so much like nowadays. So I was going into the... Um, library of my campus uh, to get some materials about the uh, MRP and stuff like that and just help him with his master thesis sub subject. So seeing him, uh, he was kind of my mentor. And even nowadays I share a lot with him, you know, uh, we share each other uh, experiences and problems uh, that we are facing in our, you know, daily, daily, on a daily basis and uh, we advise each other with totally different perspectives because now I'm on the NGO and he's on the still on the automotive sector so right. yeah that's I mean and that sounds uh sounds like a great compliment to have right and a, and a trusted advisor as well and it sounds like you guys are good friends too so it's always always great and and I sorry I interrupted you but so you were saying you had this first experience with metalsa and and you were just hooked with supply chain it seems like and uh, yeah. what did you what happened afterwards yeah, well well uh, yeah so i spent some time working there in metalsa first as a planner buyer as i said and then and then i moved a little bit to the project's uh, implementation department so i was yeah you know kind of involved in the design of the materials handling equipment try calculating the transport cost uh, which we know in the you know uh, how many uh, frames uh, we can fit into a railroad uh, you know car or in a flatbed and stuff like that you know but then after that uh, i move uh, into a oem an original equipment manufacturer to to, to navistar international trucks uh, and, the, and specifically there i was working in the uh, one uh, uh, svu strategic business unit which is called uh, the T TSC, which is a truck specialty center. So in, uh, some, some of the listeners might know that in the north of Mexico, there is this assembly plant, uh, two, two assembly lines. One of them is producing a significant number of, well, I don't know nowadays, but it was producing a significant number of ProStar, Navistar, uh, ProStar International model trucks. So the trucks were coming out fresh from the production line and we were kind of even uh, customizing those trucks according to more specific needs of the customers, mainly in, in the United States and also in Canada. So we were kind of, um, it's for example, for some trucks in the very north, we were installing the, some uh, chains for the on the tires or the snow and stuff like that. But all type of customization as far as it was making sense from the business point of, of view uh, and then shipping those trucks uh, to the different points in the, the continent. I spent some time working for them uh, in international. I learned... Did you, what did you... Yeah, I was just going to ask you that. So if... Uh, the differences between one and the other. I mean, you continue to learn different things yeah. in the supply chain. Now, uh, supply chain. What are I mean, the three things that you think kind of uh, made uh, Navistar such an amazing company? Because uh, they have an impressive supply chain and they have incredible processes. So, what, what what were the kind of three things that you thought? Well, wow, this is this is world class. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's. Uh... 
I, before being in Navistar, I had ex the, the experience of being on assembly lines of uh, light vehicles or even uh, pickups and SUVs and stuff like that. But some people might think that uh, truck as, uh, assembly lines for big trucks uh, might be boring because the speed is slower, but not in one way. I mean, those trucks at the end of the day are the ones moving everything around right. <laughs> around the United States, Mexico, all the NAFTA region, all the everywhere, you know. So, but I mean, what it was amazing for me is like uh, I don't know. It was quite special for me. It's, it's a, I don't know if some people might wonder why, but the at the end of the month, you know, all the pressure. Trying to 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 make sure that the, we were fulfilling the orders and the trucks being dispatched on time to the different uh, uh, distributors, literally, which were hundreds, uh, more, yeah, hundreds around uh, uh, United States, uh, uh, around Mexico and Canada. So seeing all this coordination or this all this organization for the trucks to be dispatching so many different directions you know and be there on time that's for the end product you know but also the arrival uh back then it is still nowadays i don't know if penske is the one penske logistics is the one uh, working with them but it's still still nowadays uh well, back then, sorry, uh, seeing all the components arriving, you know, into the plant right. and, and being put just in place in the assembly line, just in time to be when, when the sequence of the truck is reaching a, a cell in the production line and those components to be assembly on the trucks. Uh, yeah, it feels like, yeah. It's like, yeah. A, it's like an or orchestra, you know, like everything synchronized. Yes, once in a while, there were some, uh, you know, stockouts and they had to stop the line or change the production plan, whatever. But everyone back then, I, I'm sure even now this is facing those challenges, especially now this probably. So, no, it's, uh, it's exciting, right? And it sounds like you were challenged by that and you wanted to learn more. And the more you kind of like got into supply chain and, and the deadlines and the pressure and all that actually... Yeah. The happier, yeah, yeah, the the more engaged you were as well, and so no, I totally get it. And uh, please go ahead after Navistar. What I'm still looking for that, and I think everyone that's listening to this incredible interview, they're still looking about how did he actually go from Metalsa to? But but we're gonna bridge that gap slowly because I think that's where the that's where the uh, interesting part of this interview comes in. So uh, sure. keep keep going. Yeah, so I have, so back then uh, I was still 25, 20, 26 years old. And uh, even if back then I, I I was feeling that I knew everything about supply chain. If I look backwards nowadays, I say, oh my God, I was still so young. <laughs> <laughs> it's still nowadays, I'm still learning a lot. And, and um, so, well, I decided that, well, okay, I need to, you know, upskill myself. And uh, yeah, well, the, the usual step, that everyone at that age takes is like, oh, okay, I'm going for a master's degree. So yeah, well, I was checking options in my country, in my city, somewhere, everywhere. But as well, I was checking abroad and then I found something appealing for me in that moment in, in Barcelona and in Spain. So I left uh, Navistar International and then uh, in, in October 2010, I left, uh, I went, uh, just started my master's degree in, uh, in, in the University of Barcelona in, in logistics. So yeah, it was quite interesting with uh, classmates from all around the world. Uh, uh, we're really good, uh, uh, really good professors and visitor, visitor professors there. Uh, so yeah, it was interesting. Uh, then, to, well, to be honest, I just arrived to, to, to Barcelona. Uh, so I come here uh, to study, to, to learn, you know, to upskill myself, but also to enjoy the living uh, in Barcelona. And then uh, definitely I will come back to, to Mexico, to my country, to continue growing in the automotive sector if possible. You know, I was still so obsessed with, you know, all this, uh, uh, everything which is so appealing and stressful at the same time from the automotive sector, you know. Uh, but then in the middle of my master, some guys uh, call MSF just suddenly uh, 
publish uh, something uh, about anyone in the master interested on on, on doing their um, master internship, but as well specifically helping with the, with the project, you know, like to conduct the research and analysis uh, for them. Uh, and the analysis uh, was kind of help us to to do. To, to, to do an assessment of our current East African supply chain uh, network and if possible uh, kind of uh, suggest uh, low-hanging fruits you know like well, well, which improvements are already there low-hanging fruits that we can go for to improve for efficiency uh, for the East African supply chain uh, network of uh, MSF back then it was a, the operational uh, and we will go into that, but MSF is divided into operational sec uh, sections and all that. So it was a Spanish, a Spanish section. So yeah, well, definitely I said, oh my God, this is something interesting. No, it's different. Let me try it. Very, very different from the automotive sector, right? And and you told me that you had other potential inter internships as well with a, a German company. And then you had the uh, a, a Spanish company in textile and automotive. and But this yeah. kind of... It got kind of my intention because I have to be honest before, you know, seeing that uh, advertisement and did that opportunity, that email, I didn't know about them. I didn't, it was not so clear for me what was an NGO, you know, uh, uh, even less a humanitarian logistics, humanitarian supply chain terms. Back then were still new, but even for me, with those were things that I don't remember I, if I even read about the tools in, in, in college or something like that, you know? So, well, anyway, I did apply for because the, the, the idea of working with data and then projects from Africa, Middle East in some way, but mainly Africa, East Africa was quite, um, yeah, it was quite uh, uh, interesting. So, well, I got the opportunity to, to start to work with them. So uh, for six months, uh, I was, you know, having interviews with the different staff in headquarters, people uh, in the programs, in the missions, we call them in the, in the field in East Africa, people in Democratic Republic of Congo, Kenya, Somalia, uh, Sudan, uh, Ethiopia, etc. Compiling data, compiling data. As an, as an engineer that I, that I am, I was just putting all together that data, applying optim optimization um, methodologies and stuff like that. But I, I was still having an approach of the automotive sector. I mean, I was not into the into the this humanitarian medical operations and those peculiarities, those constraints, which might not be so obvious until you really experience them. You know, so yeah, it was a nice experience. Uh, yeah. Well, and when you say so, because I'm following exactly what you're saying, and I'm an engineer as well, and I think a lot of people that are listening to us are as well. I can picture you kind of compiling this huge Excel spreadsheets with all the information. When you say, so what component, I mean, and now that you've been with them for so long, and we'll we'll get into the organization and the NGO in a second, but what was kind of those things that, I mean, you now know that probably could have helped uh, you back then during that summer internship that you're like, oh, I never considered this or that or... Initially, I was totally assuming that the quality of the data was optimal. It was decent, you know. I was as well with the assumption that those tools being used at the last mile, you know, where those drugs, those vaccines, those medical items were given to the patients, I was assuming that all that data was... Uh, you know, being recorded online perfectly, you know, just like in the moment, like it's your barcodes and stuff like that. I'm not trying to say that it was not, that the data was not decent enough, but there were 
gaps, you know, there were challenges, that they were definitely discrepancies there, in, in which is one of the big challenges in the humanitarian world, let's say. Uh, but my assumption was that the data is perfect, you know, there is no bias. That, that there yeah, are you come from an industry that data has to be perfect. And then, of course, that's for the data part, but as well, when I was starting to draft proposals or models or, you know, coming to present to some people with already years of experience in the field, uh, solutions, they knew I was there learning, but they were kind of, yeah, well, it makes sense what you're saying, but it's not like that on the field, you know, <laughs> like uh, some uh, invisible barriers when it comes to transportation. So I was, yeah, so you were saying this is your lead time, but then I see the on the real performance is, is far away worse than this. Why is this? Why you are not penalizing the, you know, the transporter with stuff like, and they went, well, it's not like this, you know, like uh, it's different, you know, and uh, and I was kind of getting a little bit frustrated, but at the same time, really curious uh, why everyone told me, well, yes, but it's not like this. You need to see it on the field. You, you need to be on the field to understand it. So, well, while in this internship, um, uh, yeah, I had the opportunity to visit uh, uh, Cameroon and then Kenya to visit the ports of Douala and Nairobi, some strategic uh, 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 locations there. But still was not enough, a couple of weeks here and a couple of uh, weeks in the other side. So when I finish uh, this uh, internship and then when I just deliver something, uh, to my manager, I said, well, I just graduated from, uh, I'm about to finish my master's degree. If possible, I would like to join the pool of uh, supply chain uh, professionals of uh, MESEF and go to one of your missions. And it's what I did uh, straight from Barcelona. My, my Back then, my parents were not kind of happy after a little bit more than <laughs> one year waiting for me back in Mexico. I told them, oh, I'm not flying back to Mexico. I'm going to South Sudan. And the South Sudan, Back then, South Sudan was just recently declared uh, a new country. So it was the youngest country in, in the world. Yeah, well, what are you going to do to South Sudan anyway? So and that was uh, my, the question of my mother for my first two missions. And that she, must have been a very interesting conversation with your mom. And, and, and it's, a, it's an amazing thing, right? The way that your life can like slowly kind of uh, move towards that and uh, and and we have a lot of listeners that are younger and they're graduating. I mean, if they if they would like to learn a little bit more, how to quickly understand what they want to do or want to be in life, and I know this changes every day. It still happens to me. And what would be those kind of, I guess, suggestions that you would have for for people that are listening to us that that don't necessarily know what they want to do? They might have an idea. Maybe they want to be in the automotive sector, like you mentioned, and then you completely went into completely different what what has someone that's still figuring out things uh, need to need to do to to just make it easier or or more meaningful or well supply chain is quite wide no and then uh, obviously nowadays in this 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 future current supply chain professionals experience no experience even about to be to be to graduate um, yeah, well, we want to grow, you know, in an organization, but don't measure your growth only by the title or your paycheck every month, you know. Yes, and again, this is a quite cliche piece of advice. Yeah, it's not only about the money. Yes, we still need to pay our bills, of course. We, we kind of need to, be, to keep an eye on that, you know. But at the end of the day, if, if while doing something which is giving you a huge pay paycheck, but you are not feeling that here, you know, that satisfaction uh, in your chest at the end of the day that what you are doing again is having a positive impact in what in a direct way or in, in, a, in not so direct way, the communities, you know, in, in, in your community, in your, in your state, in your country, in your continent, whatever, in a small group of people. Well, personally, for me, I think this, this, all this, what we are living, this Kafkaan uh, reality we are living nowadays, is teaching us that, yeah, we need to keep continue running the, the global supply chains to feeding the, the business and all that. But you have seen in, whole, in all the different platforms how we're talking about more uh, a circular economy, sustainability. Well, there, there is a big as well 
opportunity in the humanitarian logistics. So anyway, what would I advise to the young listeners is like, yeah, definitely have an ambition of growing an organization, but but in the equation of what will be the, your ideal career path, you know, like like not don't only take into account your paycheck and your your status, you know, uh, and the, the bonuses that you will get, but also that satisfaction you will feel, and and that positive impact you will do in you know in in this world. Uh, we we really need that, and I think it's, it's we you and me we we will try to do our best, but it's for the new generations. Uh, to, to continue, you know, to, to restoring, you know, to, to doing something better for, 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 for this planet that unfortunately we didn't do our best, though it was not so bad, but, but anyway, I don't know. If no, I, I, this is very, I mean, very wise advice, right? I and mean, then just not, not just measure your growth by the size of the paycheck, just uh, there has to be something more. And I think that the new generations, to your point, I think actually understand it more. And I think they're going to start kind of like really demanding that companies and organizations out there really have something else in that equation, right? I, and I think it's coming and I think you're right. And I think uh, it's a great piece of advice, not only for people that are just graduating, but for anyone that's out there uh, working out there. And even if it's not in supply chain, I feel like this this because this is applicable to anyone uh, everywhere in the world, regardless of age or profession. If at the end of the day you just don't have that satisfaction, then just think about it, right? It's, and and that that's something that led you from uh, I guess Frontera Coahuila to Barcelona to that conversation with your mom and uh, going to South Sudan, which I'm pretty sure was the the last part of the world that she imagined you were going to end up. <laughs> well, that, 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 the first, yeah, that was the first last part of the world she would imagine. It would be. <laughs> uh, another piece of advice. It, it sounds that she was very uh, supportive though. I mean, yeah, from she, the little things that you have said about your mom, I'm guessing that conversation was a surprise because of course, like any other mom or, or, or parents, they want to have us close, but, but, but I'm guessing she was, uh, she, totally yeah, until, understood it, right? Yeah, I think for me it was kind of until the, until her very last day she was uh, really supportive and proud of uh, what I was, uh, what I'm doing, and uh, she was the last couple of years of her life she was remarking uh, how she realized, uh, you know, at the beginning she didn't understand why I was not following the same career path than my brothers which I admire the career of my, my three brothers. They have amazing, uh, you know, they are amazing and they are amazing what they do, but uh, she never understood why me was doing this totally different thing, you know, and uh, uh, why I was not saving for a big house for, a nice car every couple of years you know to change it or every year even and uh but then when i was coming back from every mission and catching up with her or by having calls with her and i was sharing with her just venting out you know if i had a stressful day or something then she started to understand why i was doing this even if it sometimes was draining a lot of my energy uh, or, you know, uh, so uh, yeah, that that's that was really nice. Those are nice memories. No, and um, for for whatever it's worth, I'm pretty sure that your mom is incredibly proud of you and your parents and your brothers. And 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 again, I as I mentioned before the interview, I just it's uh it's very in inspiring to talk to people like like you. And and thank you once again for everything you're you're doing. And then also. Thank you for sharing it so openly with uh, with everyone here at Logistics with a Purpose. After South Sudan, and well, actually, tell us a little bit about South Sudan. I've never been to South Sudan, but then you actually started moving yeah. rapidly throughout not only the continent but the <laughs> but the organization. So I spent uh, a little bit a um, little bit time there in South Sudan. It was quite challenging. It was a new country. Uh, you know the projects running there, and even nowadays, South Sudan is one of the most challenging uh, 
programs uh, where we have operations. Uh, I moved uh, around, uh, so uh, in 2000, late 2013, um, early 2013, sorry, uh, I'm, I went to uh, Syria when the conflict was just starting and uh, we were struggling to, to, to open, uh, you know, these emergency programs uh, through the whole country and even more struggling to, to get the, all those goods we needed to, to run this medical program. So I was in charge of, you know, uh, the reception of, it was a little, it was crazy at the beginning because we were receiving tons and tons of uh, medical uh, items in, in the south part of Turkey and then from there uh, uh, crossing the border into Syria and distributing all around the different warehouses we had in a country which was in the peak of war uh, back then. That was a really tough mission, a heavy mission for me. It was my first full war conflict uh, mission. Uh, fin after finishing there, uh, I took a break. Oh, yeah, to, yeah. I, I would not be doing my my job if I didn't ask you. So how how do you do that? How do you how do you transport products efficiently into a country that's at war? I mean, what? It's all about networking and it's about, uh, you know, uh, identifying the key stakeholders, which not only will, um, you know, uh, for example, the customs uh, and, and, and all that, but as well, even the, the different sites uh, on the conflict that uh, trying to advocate with them that your cargoes uh, are to help people regardless. We, we MSF, we are neutral, so regardless the site, regardless uh, you know, the flag they are waving. Uh, so, uh, and then telling them that these wow. goods are for humanitarian relief. So, of course, back then I was not, it was not directly me doing this. It was uh, people expert on these negotiations and security management, stuff like that. But I was working quite close along them and uh, the mornings, the days and nights uh, to make sure that these cargos that we were receiving from Monday to Sunday were literally as soon as possible landed in the airport, uh, transported and distributed around in the in the programs, in in, in Syria and in, in inside the, in Syria. Um, and I'm guessing this is done not only negotiating with both sides of the conflict, but then you also have all these different stakeholders. And uh, as does the is the UN kind of be involved, and uh, do they provide some kind of support yeah. or, or oh, it's protection or yeah yeah well more than protection is there you try to coordinate you know we try okay. to be as transparent as possible always uh, to avoid misunderstandings as well to identify stakeholders the stakeholders are not only people in the conflict but as you say other actors like un bodies icrc uh, and stuff like that uh, sorry and organizations like that um uh, so yeah, so it's a constant negotiation and a solution that you might find today might stay for a couple of days or weeks, but then it's constantly, you know, uh, monitoring if those deals, if those agreements still in place, you know, because it's a it's a war, it's an it's the conflict is evolving, you know. So uh, so yeah, that was intense. Uh, intense as well. I mean, if I remember quite. Uh, Quite, I'm quite proud of my all my medical colleagues, uh, Syrian medical colleagues, uh, all the international colleagues, and nurses, surgeons, uh, doctors, which were there literally treating the people, you know, uh, uh, saving the lives of people. So it, yeah, it was quite an emotional mission. Um, the uh, admiration that you have, I think it kind of goes and after what we're leaving with the pandemic and all that. I mean. The, the big, big thanks and uh, applause goes to the medical community, nurses, doctors, people that are risking their lives to help others. I mean, that's... Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah. that's the front line, man. That's that's, the, that is a front line and, and definitely uh, worth recognizing them. And, and yeah, so that must have been an incredible experience that then led you to the last couple of steps, then just start talking in full about the your organization and what you guys are doing and what the future will look like. Um, you briefly went back to Mexico, I see, uh, and you were working. Uh, tell us a little bit about that 
Yeah, well, switch then, back to so, uh, you know that as I say, this is was a quite intense experience for me. I say, you know that that's it. I am going back to a normal life. So I found a job. Uh, so I went back to Mexico and say, I'm going to start to search for a, for a job, a normal job, you know, in supply chain. And uh, well, the, the, there was this job in Guadalajara, Mexico, in. Doctor for Doctor Peppers, basically. <laughs> and, yeah, that's yeah the Snapple, the Snapple, Snapple group, right? Yeah. And uh, it was only for six months, and uh, well, it was my first time working for you know for a beverage company, you know, like uh, the, the, I mean, quite interesting. The the, the big volume. The, I was in the transport transportation part and. Uh, uh, negotiating uh, with the negotiation of all the you know the the transport fees for all the distribution in the wow. in mexico and the numbers i mean it was insane the number of trucks and then then you know the the, the number of different truck uh, companies that i had to 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 deal with and negotiate negotiate with uh and you know uh, yeah i mean it was it was okay Though. Well, you mentioned uh, so that the listeners kind of have a little bit more context around uh, the numbers that you're talking about, because you mentioned that as well as like a budget of around 21 million euros and 42,500 freights per year. I mean, yeah, it yeah. does sound mind boggling and it must have been a completely different yeah, kind of uh, set of challenges, right? Compared to all your previous. Um, it was guess, completely tasks. different and uh, it was and it it was a different planet not better not worse it was a different experience completely different that's yeah. great but i have to admit that after a few months uh, i was again you know i was i want to go back to msf i want to go back to the field you know so I say thank you to 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 Snapple Group to to Dr. Peppers. It was nice. I learned a lot of things here, but I don't fit here anymore. And don't take it wrong. It's just it's not me. It's you. It's not you. It's me. You know, like right. No, and well, and in your case, it kind of like seems so logical, right? I mean, after you have what you have lived uh, for the last couple of years and how intensely you have actually seen conflict and helping people and yeah it sounds like just kind of boring at the end right well yeah kind of hey i didn't want i didn't want to say that but yeah but uh right uh, so back then uh when contacting back msf uh, they were looking for a team uh, to help them to roll out uh, near p system uh well around the missions in the world and uh uh, well, I did, uh, yeah, I got that opportunity. So we were kind of, it was a new ERP, which nowadays we are now using everywhere. Home, it's, it's a homemade ERP, it's an open source ERP. Uh, it's called Unifield. And uh, so I was part of this team uh, first piloting uh, this ERP system. So in my case, we were piloting in different places around the world. And in my case, I was piloting this ERP system together with the operations team in Lebanon. So I spent some time in, in, in Beirut uh, deploying uh, this ERP system uh, there, which was wow. also quite an interesting experience, you know, uh, bringing a new system to uh, an organization used to work in an emergency mindset for decades already. So it was also a challenge, even if I knew already quite well the organization. So just to move from this, so rolling this RP, I had the opportunity to be in Lebanon, uh, Kyrgyzstan, uh, which is in Central Asia, uh, Uganda, where I, I am right now uh, as a country director. I came here back then for a couple of uh, you know weeks, uh, and Kenya. You have visited multiple, multiple countries. Mm -hmm. uh, the last part, you kind of spent time in Lebanon, Kyrgyzstan, Kenya, mm -hmm. um, and just... Tell us a little bit about the organization itself before you kind of continue your trajectory. What what is it? And for all those people out there, I'm sure that a lot already have are familiar with MSF, but uh, doctors without medicine. But for some of those that might not, what is this non NGO? Uh, okay. About? Yeah, so well, MSF, in fact, uh, in two, now in 2021, uh, it's turning 50, 50 years ago. It was founded 50 years ago in France. Uh, so it's basically an international non-governmental organization uh, with the main uh, objective, purpose, mission of 
uh, relieve suffering of those people, of, of anyone in the middle of uh, a human-made or nature uh, emergency, uh, natural emergency. Uh, now, nowadays, operations, uh, we have presence in more than 75 uh, countries around the world, in all the continents. And this uh, presence, operational presence is all, all in medical, is medical nature. So we go from, uh, in some countries we have uh, clinics where we treat uh, tuberculosis or HIV, or we also work with neglected, what we call neglected diseases, which means not a lot of people, you know, it's paying attention to, to those like the uh, uh, sleeping sleeping sickness or stuff like that, you know. Uh, we, we have big hospitals running in, in Nigeria or in, in Afghanistan, for example, uh, where we have all the different departments like the emergency room, maternity, pediatrics, neonate, uh, uh, IPD, OPD, and all those, you know. Uh, so we have presence worldwide and... Uh, I have to admit that right now for this podcast, I don't have the latest number of, of people working in the field for we'll, us. We'll add it. Don't worry about it. We can standard. add all those details afterwards so that yeah, people but, know uh, exactly what you guys but as the name is saying, As the name is saying, Doctors Without Borders, we are not only about doctors. I'm not a doctor. So doctors, uh, they need all these different support uh, departments to make the operations to run, run smooth, smoothly. Uh, we have finance, uh, professionals, experts, we have uh, human resources, we have architects, we have lawyers, we have uh, mechanics, uh, uh, and of course, supply chain uh, professionals. We have five operational centers uh, when it comes to operations. Uh, Currently, uh, the five of them based in Europe, but another two oper- uh, some operational centers are popping up in Latin America and uh, West Africa, and more are coming uh, right now. For example, with the biggest uh, emergency affecting all of us, COVID, we have we are in the front line in India, in Brazil, uh, in, in Southeast Asia. Uh, we were even active in the United States. Uh, we are quite active in Mexico with all the migrants uh, coming from cent- South and Central America. Uh, we even have uh, boats operating in the Mediterranean Sea uh, in search and rescue operations of all those people trying to reach uh, Europe, So, which is a quite dangerous uh, trip. Uh, rescuing them and bringing them to safe uh, grounds and getting the medical treatment they deserve and have right to. So, uh, uh, yeah, the nature of operation for operation is always, we are an emergency organization, uh, though we work in what we call as well in protracted uh, emergencies, which are long-term emergencies, you know, like it's not only about right now in the peak of the emergency, but what is coming after. So some is that uh, COVID could be kind of considered one of those? Uh, well, I'm not the person, I'm not the doctor and epidemiologist to right. talk about it, right. but definitely the impact might have on the health systems worldwide and, uh, you it. know, what we will come after, like uh, the, the mental health issues, because we also have mental health programs or malnutrition in some countries, will, which will come for the lack of labor in the fields to produce enough food for, you know, the population definitely will have an impact. The, the whole global uh, community. So definitely we will be there for that. And now diving into the operation supply chain aspects of it, and if you can just give us a little more information about that. So what kind of, I mean, how does a day look like in your life, right? <laughs> I mean, what, what kind of shipping, logistical challenges you're coordinating and, and then and then we'll just go well, as, current as, position in Uganda as you can as, as you can imagine um, when we have a big portfolio of different medical specialities right. it's, um, for example when you have a hospital with uh, TV ward and then you the emergency room the pediatrics the maternity and all that each of those departments have a medical standard list an assortment of drugs that you must always have there for whenever those drugs and, and materials, medical materials are needed. So 
in most of the countries that we operate, we cannot find all those drugs that, according to WHO standards, are needed to treat properly a patient, you know? So we have to bring those goods from different countries, abroad, from different places abroad. But we have, specifically for us nowadays, we have three uh, supply centers, we call them European, we call them European supply centers because the three of them are in Europe, in Amsterdam, Brussels and Bordeaux in, 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 in France. And uh, there we consolidate big part of most of the orders that we dispatch later to the field uh, by the different transport um, uh, ways, so even by sea or uh, by air, or even some places we can reach like road, like you can go by road, for example, from uh, Europe all the way to, to right. Afghanistan and so on. So, uh, and depends. And then you also need to receive them and unpack them. I mean, you take care of everything until the last mile, until you put those boxes yeah. into the so hospital's we, shelves, we, basically. Obviously, to, we do all this to, I mean, with supply chain, people, supply chain is not only about people with supply chain on title, but uh, all together with the or medical or pharmaceutical and medical colleagues, uh, which are in charge, you know, they are the, the, the quality assurance people. They are the ones that know about drugs, but they are part of the supply chain. So yes, reception, quality assurance. Let's keep on mind. Sometimes we transport, most of the times we transport as well, cold chain items, which require cold chain. So while in Europe and in, in North America, well, cold chain is not an issue. Well, in the global south, it can be a challenge, you know, like uh, uh, bringing the goods all the way, uh, not to the port of entry only or the airport uh, where we will receive these this goods, but then keeping those items in the, the, you know, with the good temperature to don't spoil them and to be ready for the patients. So it's dealing with all this, attributes of all the more than uh, 10,000 different items in the catalog of medical items that we uh, use in the different programs in the field. Some of them come with a short shelf life. So we bring, we need to bring enough quantity, you know, for the order cycle, but at the same time, we cannot bring uh, goods with which will expire before we consume them because then we need to deal with expired drugs and property you know like dispose them properly it's not that right. you just report right. the, the law that you know we, we report this in our in our system but there is a whole process for that and of course we don't want to waste uh, those resources you know no, it's a, it sounds like an incredibly complex uh, operation and, and and it must be amazing what you guys are doing and uh Jumping a little bit ahead because you've been you've been everywhere basically it seems like and you've actually learned a lot of different things. You were also a, uh, an advisor in Amsterdam and then you uh, went on to become an officer in Brussels uh, and then you had some other roles and finally you reached to where you are now. And so tell us tell us where you are now, what you do, and what your title is, and and then uh, just the more specific situation that you're dealing with in Kampala, Uganda. Yeah. So uh, now here in here in Kampala, I'm the country director and uh, general manager of the support unit Kampala. Uh, so I'm wearing two, 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 two caps because uh, one is uh, when it's about all, you know, like uh, uh, approaching the authorities, the diplomacy and stuff like that. I'm the country director, but day to day, I'm the general manager of the support unit Kampala. So we are regional uh, hub and here we are our main goal is to support emergency response so whenever for example uh, we have a small uh, we have Ebola uh, outbreaks we have a Ebola response uh, kits here in our warehouse that we dispatch in less than 48 hours whatever in the East African region they need it regardless if it's in most of the times in the last years has been always in DRC, in Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, so we are dispatching all those kits uh, which are basically providing the medical teams on the ground enough materials and infrastructure to open a cholera treatment, sorry, an Ebola treatment center. We also have kits for cholera. So whenever there is a cholera outbreak, uh, we dispatch these kits in less than 48 hours. 
uh, for the medical teams to have all this that they need to set proper uh, treatment centers and uh, to start their emergency intervention. So our main scope here uh, is emergency response. Uh, we and you cover, you said DRC, but is it also South Sudan, Kenya, Tanzania? Uh, I mean, how, maybe, how broad is the, we, the we, region? We, that we have, sometimes we even go as, as far as uh, West Africa, but mainly the, 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 the countries that we mainly support from here are South Sudan and DRC. Uh, but also lately we have been supporting uh, Tanzania, Tanzania mission uh, because as well we have a, what we call a regional uh, workshop. So where, you know, you will see in the videos of MSF, we have these all-terrain vehicles, the Land Cruisers, Toyota Land Cruisers, that after being a significant time on the roads, in the roads here, uh, they they, 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 you know, they need, besides their service A, service B, they need their right. specialized service. So we have a big fleet of vehicles that they come from the neighboring countries for the specialized services. So like that, we extend the life of the vehicle to be in optimal conditions uh, uh, in the missions. And you're part of the operations, not only for the medical sides of things, but I'm guessing all the spare parts and that's keeping correct. the, tr that's all still under your yep. responsibility so we, and we, the we, operations group. That's correct. So we have to do, to, to, wow. so we're talking I didn't, about, even, didn't even think about any of that, but I guess, yeah, it makes so perfect we sense. We have super specialized mechanics uh, here in gearboxes and stuff like that. But of course the supply chain uh, component of it is that we, we need to get, of course, uh, leg legit uh, Toyota spare right. parts, for example, uh, right. uh, to, to be installed into these vehicles that later will be continue to be used in the in the field. You know, so these guys in in the workshop we have here are quite busy every day. You know, uh, and they know what they are doing. I no, I I imagine. So tell us a little more about Uganda. Think how long have you been in Uganda? What's a couple of things that you can tell us about the the country and the uh, city of Kampala uh, for people that uh, I mean, I haven't been to Uganda yet, but for people that are listening to us. Yeah, well, Uganda is quite a um, nice country in, in the Equator. If you take a look right now in Google Maps, uh, you know, uh, uh, before being hit by COVID, uh, you know, uh, tourism uh, was one of the biggest sources of income, you know, like uh, you have the Queen Elizabeth National Park, Morshinson Falls and disorders. You have all the big five animals uh, uh, that you can go and take a look on them, the, the lions, the, the elephants and all that. Uh, super green, it's green everywhere. And you know, like it's so crazy, like all year round, uh, it's green fruits everywhere, like yeah. crazy. I mean, if there is a thing in Uganda, it's like people love, you know, taking care of the soil and then, you know, uh, harvesting and, you know, producing their own food. Uh, it's, it's located, it's in the middle, you know, so it's a landlocked country, obviously, next to Kenya and next to, between Kenya, DRC, uh, Tanzania, Burundi, Rwanda. And, uh, well... I just Google it and it looks beautiful because you have also the mountains in the north and you have lake victoria in the south it looks yeah, you have a look at lake victoria cool. you have the mount elgon you have uh Rensori mountains uh if you're a coffee lover like me i mean you have really good coffee uh, here uh, so yeah it's quite quite interesting i'm here with with my family with, with my wife and my toddler son a three years old son and they are having good time uh, we are musungus here so a Musungu is basically a foreigner. So uh, we're, Musungu. Yes, yes, so we're enjoying our Musungu life uh, here uh, in, in, in Kampala. No, that's, and thanks for sharing all this. And um, I, you mentioned coffee and I was going to ask you actually about, you're part of a, you're a member of, um, what's the name of this coffee association? No, I, that I used, no, not a member. Uh, what, what is uh, what, uh, it's a specialty coffee association and which uh, they have quite interesting podcasts. I mean, if we have any specialty coffee lover listening to us right now, I mean, they, they know what we're talking about. And uh, I had the opportunity to be a volunteer in the, uh, this event, the World of Coffee, they organize 
in 2019 in Ber Berlin. Uh, I was a volunteer there helping the baristas in their com to prepare their gear for their competition, uh, you know, serving a lot of nice coffee from everyone. So getting caffeinated. Uh, uh, I was supposed to, to be volunteer again in the next year, in, in which was supposed to be in Warsaw in Poland, but then COVID. Uh, COVID hit us, yeah. But yeah, coffee is my thing. Uh, I like uh, well, we've been from Mexico having amazing coffee as well. Uh, I'm sure listeners, listeners in the United States, uh, they, everyone knows what is specialty coffee about. And uh, so and it, it, there's a heavy component of supply chain there even more to, to, to complement this hobby, let's say. so. No, so again, uh, Diego, it's been, a, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for sharing all this. Uh, how do you see the, the future, not only of the organization, but uh, Uganda, the pandemic? I mean, there's so many variables. Um, you mentioned that Latin America might be interesting and that you guys are going to grow into those regions. Where, where do you see the future from your perspective, uh, speaking, I guess, more specifically about the supply chain and, and the impact that not only the pandemic, but your experience has I think like, had in the... Like, like everywhere in MSF, in the organization, COVID to help in some way to, to, to bring... to fully to the table, the strategic role of supply chain. Uh, everyone knew that supply chain was important, but it, not everyone knew uh, how strategic it was. I mean, how vulnerable or the global supply chains that we were part of were until something like this. And especially for us, you know, a pandemic like this, we, we are supposed to respond, we, which we did. But we were struggling, you know, like like to find to find uh, material, uh, pro personal protection equipment, material stuff like that. We were working like crazy. We're still working like crazy, you know, to assure the, the uh, smooth supply for our operations and for our doctors to have everything. So, anyway, the fact that COVID is now on the table uh, for executives, uh, you know, or directors, uh, more and more, uh, we're talking about you know, upgrading our, our current model, you know, investing in, in new technology and bringing more skills into our, uh, you know, uh, programs, projects and uh, headquarters. Uh, we, we, we need to, 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 to be stronger, to respond even faster to the emergencies coming. Uh, so we are now, you know, also not only that, that we want to be more, continue being agile, but as well, we are starting, starting to be more conscious about our carbon footprint. Yes, we are not, we are big, maybe we are not the worst, but we're still moving a lot of, uh, metric tons around the globe you know and that is coming with a carbon footprint you know so we we are really reflecting about what can we do to still respond in the, the fastest in, in the shortest time to emergencies but at the same time being conscious about our carbon footprint how sustainable our programs are uh the social impact so we are reflecting more and more about that that's incredible and uh, and yeah i saw like a video uh i think that you posted on your linkedin uh profile about this uh, carbon footprint and the sustainability and and that's basic that is a big uh, a big um, project that uh, Doctors Without Borders is having which is refreshing because you're not only helping people but you're wanting to do it in a very sustainable way which uh, it, that's just amazing right I, I lot of a lot of uh, companies out there a lot of organizations out there um, should be paying attention to what you guys are doing and and you also mentioned that you need more people. You need, and and so if you could now kind of give 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 it a, a give it a pitch to everyone that's listening to this that wants to do something different that 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 have been as inspired as I have with your with your life story and they want to join. They want to join not only in helping you with your projects and donations and support, but they actually literally want to join doctors without borders they don't need to be a doctor which is something that uh, many people me included probably thought was somewhat needed but um 
go ahead if you had to but you just said we, we we need to we need more supply chain professionals i mean uh, we are handling here quite complex supply chains in all aspects from the analytics side to the you know international transport uh part we need all type of professionals in the supply chain from procurement experts to uh again the the, the distribution part so uh, Recently, I have seen more and more interest from, from the supply chain community, people really, really, you know, asking questions and even the academia, for example, getting paying more attention to the humanitarian supply chains. That's really nice. Still not enough. So I promise everyone who will like to will try this and uh, it's a life experience and probably maybe you won't do it your whole life or maybe yes. I say myself, I will try it only. I told to myself 10 years ago, I will do it maybe for three years. It's already 10 years and I'm still here. Uh, who knows? But you can try and it's going to be a life experience. And while doing so, be sure that you will be helping a lot of people uh, in, in such experience, with such experience. So, so again, I invite everyone to take a look in our websites and there is always there, uh, uh, you know, all the requirements, uh, I mean, to, to apply for a pool of supply chain experts and then being there is waiting to be called for that first mission, uh, which can be nowadays everywhere. And uh, so, yeah, please. There, there, you, there you have it. It's, um, it's a very compelling pitch. I think that uh, the story that you have told us and shared with us today actually makes it even more compelling. And I'm pretty sure that a lot of our listeners will uh, not only go into the website, but hopefully apply and go ahead. It sounds to me like uh, not only an incredible, challenging, interesting opportunity, but it gives you the opportunity to help others. It gives you the opportunity to grow. It gives you the opportunity to learn and, uh, and it gives you opportunity to get to know other cultures and countries and regions of this world. And uh, I think it's, it sounds exciting. Um, so thank you so much, Diego, for for uh, for sharing that with us. Wh where can people get uh, connect to you if there's any questions? And and we're gonna try to do some another one, right? Because I I had so many different things that I still wanted to ask you, but uh, we'll have to do at least a couple others and follow you in the next couple of months and follow. Um, Doctors Without Borders, uh, for sure. Yeah. But where can people reach out to you? What's I think the best way of getting in touch with you? LinkedIn. Uh, so basically, just look for me, Diego Flores, MSF. I, will, I think I'm the only one in MSF, Diego, the only Diego Flores in MSF. So you will find me immediately. And I'm quite active there. Uh, you can send me a message, a friend request, and uh, contact request. And uh, yeah, let's, let's, I can answer all your questions. Your, if you're curious about uh, how's the life in the field, I mean, uh, how difficult will be, or any any practical question you may have, or any advice, I'm happy to 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 share with any of you. Well, once again, Diego Flores, MSF, Doctors Without Borders. Thank you so much. I know it's late in Uganda. Thank you so much for taking this uh, video call and, and thank you so much for everything that you and your team are doing and the entire medical community, the entire first respondents. Thank you, everyone. Have a great, great day and uh, rest of your weeks. And of course, if you enjoy this conversation, please don't, don't, uh, don't miss following in Logistics with Purpose. Uh, supply chain now. Thank you so much, Enrique Alvarez, and I'll see you guys next time with another interesting 